Hi everyone, this is Suha Çubukçuoğlu from uh, the Turkish Heritage Organization in Washington, D.C. Uh, we continue our monthly podcast series. Um, this, this month we have um, a special guest from the TRT World Research Center in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, Dr. Serkan Birgel, uh, who joins me to discuss and uh, share his views on, uh, on Cyprus. Um, so we will be looking at efforts, um, recently um, renewed efforts for a just, equitable and permanent solution on the island. And Serkan will uh, share his views from a geopolitical standpoint today with us. So Serkan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sure, sure. Serkan, so let's get started. Um, so the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, recently extended an invitation for a meeting of parties in, in the Cyprus dispute this coming April. And the meeting will be convened in Geneva, Switzerland. It was first meant to happen in, in New York, US, but it's been uh, postponed and relocated to Geneva. Um, now we know that this is the first multi-party meeting since the, um, the collapse of the Grand Montana round in 2017. Would you please uh, elaborate on what has changed in the past four years uh, on the Cyprus issue? Where are we up today? I think there's been both change and continuity. Um, the Cyprus problem in its essence remains the same. I think over the years we've had a new dimension in the form of the natural gas issue, um, which has been many years in the making and seems to have come to the boil in recent years. I think that the election of Mr. Ersin Tatar, President Tatar, in the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus and the TRNC signaled Turkish Cypriot frustration with the peace process thus far. And I think a new track was adopted. I think that in prior years, the Turkish Cypriots felt that the best approach to the peace talks, the settlement negotiations, was to be as flexible as possible and to always be regarded as the pro-solution side, even though after each iteration of the peace process, there would be a blame game um, between the two sides. But I think that the Turkish Cypriot approach has proved quite fruitless at the end of the day um, for a number of reasons that I suppose we'll be going into later. I think that people were across the board, across the political spectrum, genuinely quite frustrated at the status quo because the Turkish Cypriots are at a structural disadvantage uh, to the Greek Cypriots in the Republic of Cy uh, uh, Cyprus, in the Greek Cypriot administration of Southern Cyprus. And, you know, they're, they're, they're the recognized government, they are also part of the European Union. And try as they might, even if the Turkish Cypriots, you know, got a pat, pat on the back, as it were, uh, for being pro-solution. None of that was of a, of, of a magnitude, or none of that was significant enough to really kind of get the Greek Cypriot side to engage in kind of concessions that the Turkish Cypriots were seeking or could um, accede to. Um, and. Fast forward to today, we are having an informal meeting as it is being billed 
um, in April. And I think that from there, we could possibly have another Crans Montana, Montpellerin style, five plus one or two, or God knows what format of serious um, negotiations. So I think that would be a good summation of the period thus far. Thank you, Serkan. Thank you. Uh, indeed, you made uh, a punctual reference there to, you know, the frustration that's been brewing over the decades on the northern, northern uh, Cypriot side, on the Turkish side, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. Every time I visit there, it's appalling to see the, the, this difference, the the injustice that that the Turkish Cypriots have been accorded to, you know, over over decades, ever since the European accepted Union accepted uh, Greek Cypriots into the Union, the situation has just exacerbated. Absolutely, I agree with you on there. Now you uh, touched on Mr. Ersin Tatar's President Tatar's election, um, so let me follow on from there. Since uh, President Tatar's election to presidency last year, um, the Turkish and Turkish Cypriot side sort of began to voice the two-state solution uh, louder. Um, there have also been rumors in media about the Greek Cypriot equations to this idea somewhat, um, although it's been firmly denied through official statement by public officials. Um, but still, you know, it's, it's important that at least it, it, there is a talk of it and the offer is on the table. In your view, uh, is it a viable solution uh, or is it still the bi-zonal, bi-communal federation that's still the basic assumption for a negotiated solution? I wrote about this in an opinion article um, for Al Jazeera recently. I think that when Tatar speaks of a two-state solution, he's doing one of two things, or both things at the same time. He's telling us that the reality on the island is that there are already two states, recognized or not. And then he's telling us that in the future, if of course the TRNC will not be recognized internationally and for that to happen anyway, the Greek Cypriots would have to sign off on it, which is you know, <laughs> very unlikely. Um, but the next best thing, of course, uh, would be a confederal model, a confederation with the maximum amount of power devolved to each constituent state in a new federal united Republic of Cyprus. And, I think that when he does refer to two states, perhaps in his heart of heart, yes, he would love the TRNC uh, to be recognized in its own right. And that's not really a surprise because we know that the bi-zonal, bi-communal federation is a compromised solution in and of itself. And we know that at the time, the 1950s and 60s, the Cypriot community, the Greek Cypriot community wanted very different things uh, for the island of the Cyprus. They managed to have a independent non-aligned Republic of Cyprus, but that only lasted a few years, three years or so. And when Tatar mentions two states or sovereign equality, he could be more specific, yes. Uh, he could be more nuanced, um, but I do feel that what he really means in essence is a confederal model with the maximum amount of power devolved from the central government of the Federal Republic of Cyprus to the two constituent states, which will compose jointly uh, any kind of new entity that emerges. This, these are not new ideas in essence. I, I'm sure that every nook and cranny of the Cyprus problem has been discussed either publicly or privately uh, along the, well, what's over half a century of the Cyprus problem at least. Yeah. And there's also been 
whilst people talk about these two different um not two different ways the the the, the two-state solution or the bizonal bicommunal federation people also speak of a third way and that's represented in the north of cyprus in the trnc by usually and he says you know we should cooperate as we are um without getting into the kind of sticking points of sovereignty or recognition or any of that and then perhaps we can you know build up a kind of spirit of federalism that would make it easier for us to kind of sit at the table and understand each other and look each other eye in the eye, eye, eye to eye. Um, but uh, unfortunately, that really sort of is or has been in history quite a limited approach because cooperation is largely viewed as an anathema um, by the sort of either, usually the Greek Cypriot side, but the Turkish Cypriot side also, you know, that it wants to be sort of uh, reduced to an impotent minority. Um, and usually we have biocommunal initiatives at cooperation, but they're usually, as I say, um, very kind of uh, uh, innocuous kind of events, you know, fixing up a mosque here, fixing up a church here, mm -hmm. um, the community of missing persons there, um, cooperating on health issues um, in recent time or cooperating when it comes to um, criminals that try to cross the border from either side. Um, so that level of cooperation goes on in the background, but it's nothing really um, of the kind of scale that some people wish it to be. Um, and some of the effects of that kind of cooperation, I think, are um, assumed to be the case, but may not actually um, be warranted. So that's that, that's the kind of situation we are at the moment. Um, we are speaking of two states. I, I think that the Turkish Cypriot government at the moment is adopting a lot more sort of honest approach. It's very sort of transparent of what it wants. You know, it, it's not going to the negotiating table, um, speaking of the bison or biocommunal federation, but always pulling it in a different manner, um, which is what usually both sides have done. You know, they've gone in speaking about the bison or biocommunal federation, but in their heart of hearts, um, they want to pull of that interpretation, that model one way or the other, uh, the Greek Cypriots would usually like a more unitary state with a strong, strong central government, and the Turkish Cypriots would want more power devolved into the two constituent states. Yeah, yes, so, so uh, yeah, thanks for this uh, great overview, and I think uh, Turkish Cypriots, from what you just explained, I understand, is that they are um, uh, more equality conscious, so they want political equality in whatever form of um, final government model uh, the island communities decide to settle on, uh, be it a loose confederation or a bicommunal federation. Uh, but with that, I still am from what you said, I understand that the, the goal is still uh, to have a single identity uh, for the international, in international community, um, a single identity for the state, rather than two um, you know, separate states, but you know, in the UK, and you, you and I also, uh, you know, have uh, you know, past uh, history, I think, having lived in the UK, yeah. and that you know, in, in there, for instance, Scotland has uh, some kind of semi independence, right? So they, they have yeah. uh, national sports teams, they can join different contests uh, or organizations uh, on their own. So maybe this could be a kind of uh, solution uh, for the future. Um, but yeah, different models have been discussed over many years. Uh, it's just, I think we seem to be going in circles and what seems rather, what you just explained fits very well. Like, you know, what seems as a new idea is really not that new as in, you know, it's been no. around for some time. Yeah. Um, 
So that actually brings me to my next question because you, you also spoke about um, you know, joint work and efforts to revive uh, certain you know, historical monuments and other things around the island. One, one topic of uh, interest to um, different constituents for different reasons, but certainly for um, you know, Turkey is also Marash, uh, suburb of Famagusta. Yeah. So North Cyprus opened Marash uh, to public access uh, and we hear about plans to reconstruct the entire city and to make it a tourist attraction spot once again, you know, as it was in 1970s. It was the Copacabana of uh, the East Med at that time, uh, you know, uh, probably better. Um, yeah. So how feasible is this plan to, to reconstruct the city? Uh, because there is, is a mention of this huge, uh, you know, built to foot, like a $10 billion, uh, you know, effort required. So what is the time horizon we're looking at here and how realistic is this plan? I think firstly, the, the move, um, on Marash, on Barosha, the suburb of Famagusta, was really born again out of Turkish Cypriot frustration with the status quo, that they were not going to have their future entirely hinged on the whim of the Greek Cypriots um, or the settlement process on the island. And I think that although the optics could have been better, there was a very famous Greek Cypriot, um, Alexandros Lordos, I think he was I think great-grandmother or grandmother was actually a Turkish Cypriot and he owns a lot of property, his family owns a lot of property in um, Marash. And he actually met Turkish Cypriot officials, I think he met President Tatar as well, and he was very willing uh, to come back um, to be in possession or be in charge of his um, 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 properties in this um, in this suburb, which I think is a good thing because what the Turkish Cypriots have said is that they are keen to return uh, these properties to their lawful owners, which usually means the Greek Cypriots, although there are claims, of course, from the Ottoman era Evka Foundation on the land that it says was usurped from it illegally um, by the British colonial administration. But the idea is that Greek Cypriots will be able to return um, to this suburb. And I think both Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots will benefit immensely. And some of the optics in the South have been that, you know, the um, Turkish or Turkish Cypriot administration are just going to give away these properties willy-nilly to, you know, anyone who's not Greek. <laughs> I think that's a bit over the top. Um, I think that some of those claims are you know, exaggerated. They're not, you know, they don't hit the mark of what's actually been said or what's actually uh, the intention of the Turkish Cypriot side. Um, but we haven't had too many more developments since, um, the opening occurred, or for example, since they were high level visits from Turkey, I think thousands, if not tens of thousands, perhaps even more people have visited um, Marash. Um, some level of restoration has taken place on the roads. Um, people started swimming there on the first day that it was open. So it was quite a strange sight, um, but you know, the taboo was broken, I think. Or on the um, the issue of Marash, usually it was regarded as some sort of a bargaining chip. Um, you know, give us Marash, and we'll let you have direct flights to the airport um, in North Cyprus. Um, but I don't think the Turkish Cypriots are keen on waiting around anymore, so they're quite willing to take matters into their own hands, which is not exactly a sort of I don't know 
strange occurrence in Cyprus, and you've got the natural gas issue, which can be regarded from the Turkish Cypriot side as Greek Cypriot unilateralism. Um, so I felt that they were sort of rising to the occasion and, you know, tip the tap. But I do think that there is a way for both communities to benefit here. Um, and time-wise, horizon-wise, I'm not so sure because if um, there is a lot of condemnation or pandemonium about the move, it may alter the quote-unquote atmosphere of the talks um, coming up um, in the not-too-distant future. But I think that sometimes fear of that kind of recrimination is often paralysed um, both Turkish Cypriots and, Turk and Greek Cypriots from doing something constructive. Uh, so there's a kind of pain barrier almost that one has to get through before yeah. uh, you know, uh, laying claim to these sorts of developments or you know, pushing forward with these sorts of developments. I mean, I see a silver lining in this. Um, others may not. Interesting, um, which actually brings me uh, to talk a little bit about energy geopolitics, since you mentioned, um, you know, common resources and uh, all the global commons around the island. Um, so uh, due to the COVID-19 induced economic recession, uh, we know that international oil companies have had to postpone their capital investments, uh, you know, delay their offshore exploration activities and uh, reevaluate their monetization options. Um, Cyprus is one of the affected countries, no doubt. Um, and there's also the EU 2050 energy roadmap uh, that aims to achieve zero carbon emissions, which is an ambitious plan. Um, yep. So in the post-COVID era, um, how significant do you think oil and gas findings around the island will be? Um, is this still a game changer? Uh, and I ask this question particularly because you have a background in, in energy and geography and your um, focus area at TRT World is, is on energy geopolitics. So very much uh, looking forward to your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I, I could go on for hours here. I wrote a doctoral thesis on the subject, but obviously the more that I know about it, the more there is to know, and the more I realize that I don't know. I think that um, the association between the peace process and the future of natural gas on the island was a very strange matter it was regarded as a catalyst for peace but i think the central issue was the definition of meaning of peace i think it was a tool of geopolitics i think it was utilized as a bargaining chip again um, but strangely it was never made part of the formal negotiations on the island it was not you know the on the same footing as some of the more established and traditional um areas of discussion such as territorial power sharing or EU relations or property and so on. And yes, I think that from the moment, especially when the Aphrodite offshore natural gas field was encountered, discovered, um, this discourse of natural gas can be a catalyst for peace has been generated and promoted, but evidently it's been anything but. I think that, yeah, sure, I mean, um, the future is often portrayed quite bleakly at the moment for the oil and gas industry, especially uh, in the context of the energy transition. There will be a future for oil and gas in the world, of course. I mean, they're not going to sort of, um, mm. these entities and these companies, or, or yeah. demand for these fossil fuels are not going to you know, dissipate entirely um, anytime soon. I do think that there's been a bit more sort of concentration on the regional 
rather than any kind of global aspirations for Eastern Mediterranean natural gas. And I think that for a long time, other institutions have been quite skeptical of the more grandiose plans or aspirations or desires, um, especially in the form of the East Med pipeline, um, which I think had a fairly significant, if not overwhelming political or geopolitical component to it than a commercial component. Yeah, uh, you've, you've seen, for example, Chevron into the scene recently, the US oil and gas major, and I think they've been inclined to send Leviathan um, natural gas offshore Israel to Egypt by yeah. um, pipeline. Um, and I think that many commentators in the region, given of course the state of play in the oil and gas industry, have been emphasizing that perhaps regional cooperation with the region should be um, emphasized rather than kind of more grandiose um, plans and projects. I think that there's oftentimes an assumed um, geopolitical value to these developments. You know, it's almost as if it's the end of the world if you know, Israel sends natural gas uh, to, to Egypt or, or in, in, in effect if the Greek Cypriots um, sell natural gas to Europe. I mean, uh, it's, it, it's, it's almost lined up as a knockdown argument that will fundamentally and forevermore uh, change all dynamics in the region. I, I think that's very exaggerated. I think that it's quite sort of uh, uh, superfluous and nebulous. You, you can sort of aggrandize it as much as you want. You can expect as, as much kind of geopolitical clout as, it for, as you want. Uh, but I really don't think that so long as the fundamentals of the Cyprus problem don't change, which are in essence a power sharing struggle between the two communities on the island, uh, then none of these kind of external developments can catalyze a peace process in a mutually constructive way. And I don't think that they will ever overpower some of the more traditional or long-standing concerns that have emerged um, over the last half a century. I think that when you do have positive relations or perhaps when you are near, for example, the finishing line, a potential agreement with natural gas can help the parties cross over the line. Um, but I don't think that as a standalone development, they're going to or the future of natural gas, especially Cyprus's offshore natural gas, is going to wholly determine uh, the future of the island. Yeah, um, so the Greek Cypriot efforts to really leverage this as a bargaining chip on the negotiation table is, um, is not really going to play out, is it, in this uh, atmosphere, uh, as from what we, what we understand, what you just explained. Um, I mean, this is interesting because for much of the stuff we read on, uh, you know, mainstream media, uh, the, the the situation is rather portrayed as a, a contestation over energy fines or hydrocarbon based yeah. med, which really isn't the case. It's it's more of a political or geopolitical uh, struggle, a power uh, uh, sharing struggle, uh, power politics, let's say, rather than uh, you know energy per se. Uh, so thanks very much for bringing that perspective, uh, Sarkam. Um, Thank you. Moving on to our next question, um, let's let's come to the UK, uh, which is a, a very important, which has been a, an immensely important actor uh, on Cyprus uh, ever since you know the end of the nineteenth century. 
Um, so the UK left the EU last January, as, as we all know, uh, but it's got a closer relationship with Turkey. Now it's developing um, you know, bilateral ties. They just signed an, a free trade agreement, uh, yeah. also developing partnerships in defense industry. Um, plus, as you know, the, the UK is still a guarantor power of the 1960 Republic uh, and maintains two military bases in South Cyprus. Uh, yeah. In the context of UK Foreign Minister uh, Dominic Raab's visit to the island uh, this month and meeting with uh, the Turkish Cypriot president, uh, Mr. Tatar, what in your view is the UK's position on Cyprus issue uh, in the post-Brexit uh, era? Uh, what, are we to expect any change in, in the policy? I think that Britain has a very exciting role to play. It always has. It's a long-term or long-standing stakeholder, traditional stakeholder to the dispute. And I'm not so sure about what its post-Brexit status may be, because if the UK is not part of the European Union, then it can't play that sort of balancing role between um, the other two remaining key states, such as France and Germany. And I think that if the UK has an affinity towards Turkey, then a country like France um, seems to have the opposite sort of um, inclination towards the country. Um, but at the end of the day, the Greek Cypriot administration of Southern Cyprus, the Republic of Cyprus, is a part of the European Union. And in these negotiation talks, in the settlement talks, the EU is usually an observer party, but, you know, the, the, we, we, we can't sort of, you know, um, easily brush aside the overlaps between the two. And in that sense, I think that the UK now has um, perhaps a little bit more sort of wiggle room um, to play a bigger role. And I, I know that's quite abstract, but it has, for example, um, 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 the ability to encourage um, flexibility. Um, from both the Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots. It's previously, I think, in the Annan plan era, offered to cede some of the land from its um, sovereign base areas. It's done so recently, actually, in the last few years. Um, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly what it got in return, but back in the Annan plan days, it decided to offer a substantial or significant amount of territory to be ceded back uh, to the new entity, whatever it would be. Um, in the event of a resolution to the Cyprus problem. Um, I think Dominic Raab's statements have been, you know, generally quite welcomed. I think they're necessary. You know, sometimes if there is no kind of performance on Cyprus, if the TRNC is not continuously con uh, you know, condemned, then people are sort of uh, quite clean to sort of, you know, go on some sort of a witch hunt and decry the blasphemy that has occurred. But I do think that um, such kind of more balanced statements are necessary. Otherwise, you know, the sides are going to be continuously locked in as they are now to their negotiating positions, to the kind of inequality of power, the power balance on the island is going to remain the same. There has to be some sort of a, a push. There has to be some sort of an incentivization, an incentive. Um, unfortunately, the two catalysts for peace that we had, as they were called, the natural gas development process, the EU extension process were, I think, mismanaged or mishandled um, or not used in the most opportune or 
um, and constructive way. But I think we'll have to wait and see, really. We can't really tell what's going on, what people are thinking behind closed doors. Um, I understand, of course, that the United Kingdom is not going to, <laughs> to recognise the TRNT. It doesn't work like that. Uh, we, quite, we can't really expect those kind of uh, inordinately um, game-changing developments like that. And that, that's not really possible. As I say, the recognition of the TRNC would have to come from, um, I think, it will be solely down to the Greek Cypriots agreeing to it, you know, from secession from the Republic of Cyprus, which is not very likely at all. Um, but yeah, I do believe that the United, United Kingdom can play a bit more of a constructive role. Yeah, um, so no major change to expect anytime soon on the horizon, but there may be a more a nuanced role for the UK uh, in this new era. Um, so that brings me to my final question, actually, and that's about uh, the US. Um, yeah. So the US administration uh, has changed uh, this year. Now Joe Biden is at the White House. Um, and it's no secret that, you know, uh, Turkey-US relations at, uh, are at an all-time low. Um, so given the overall precarious state of uh, bilateral affairs, how does the situation in Cyprus affect uh, the geopolitical landscape in the region? Um, in other words, what is the significance of Cyprus for uh, the Biden administration, for, for the US in this new era? I mean, keeping the Cyprus problem alive, um, having, a, having the status quo continue is, I think, not very conducive to anyone on the island. I, I think that, yes, if there was an EU extension process today and the Cyprus problem would be resolved and that would pave the way for Turkey's uh, extension to the European Union, okay, fine, you could see a very clear kind of incentive there to get Turkey. And as much as I hate the phrase, um, you know, turning away from the uh, east or turning towards the west or whatever it is, I think that if there was that kind of a setup, um, and there may be, a, you know, after the resolution of the Cyprus problem, I think a, a huge, you know, a, a stone in the shoe of Turkey relations um, could be eliminated. And I think the problem has gone on far too long. And I think that the Greek Cypriots won't have to sort of, you know, uh, try to leverage any sort of rivalries between Turkey and any other state uh, for the purpose of the Cyprus problem, I think that could reduce the complexity of the issue. And I think that perhaps the United States of America uh, might find it quite conducive to have that kind of a resolution in Cyprus. I mean, they are for a bi-communal federation, as I think um, the Foreign Secretary, um, if, that's, if that's the official title, I'm not sure, I don't think it is, um, Mr. Blinken, um, stated recently, they are for a bison and bike unit federation. You know, I didn't expect them to say they're for a confederal solution or anything like that. Um, I think they were just engaging in pro forma. Um, but I do think that having a solution to the Cyprus problem is just going to take a lot of weight off everyone's shoulders or all the way around. You know, they're, they're, there's not going to be any kind of um, 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 internal critique or embitterment um, by either Turkish Cypriots or Turkey. Um, you know, just to keep the Cyprus problem alive so that the, um, the Republic of Turkey can, can never enter the European Union or, you know, always use the Cyprus problem against uh, the Republic of Turkey and so on and so forth. I think that it would be a very positive step. Um, 
both for first and foremost the two communities themselves, um, then the European Union and Turkey, and thereon uh, the United States and Turkey. I think it'd be a very positive development. Yeah, and it would be, it would be a great uh, you know addition, uh, a catalyst to the sort of overall regional peace process. Um, well, Serkan, uh, thank you very much for your participation. Uh, that was a great conversation uh, of, about a, a very important issue for Turkey, uh, the European Union and the US, uh, as well as the UK for uh, the entire region, if not globally. So um, thank you again for having shared your thoughts with us and uh, wishing you uh, a great rest of the week. Uh, we hope to be able to have you again uh, on our panels to uh, discuss uh, this important topic in more detail, perhaps in the future, and then uh, hear more updates from you on this, uh, on this. Sarkhan, thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Most welcome.